Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and this is the show where busy people learn how to build substantial passive income. And today's show is all about passive income, and specifically, it's about mortgage notes. I have a long interview here with a good friend who is involved with mortgage note investing, and he has been for over a decade. He's very successful at it, has a very large portfolio of notes, and he really understands the ins and outs of mortgage note investing and how to profit from it. And so let's get right to that interview here in 30 seconds. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. It's my pleasure to welcome David Campbell to the show. David is a founder of Hassle-Free Cashflow Investing. He started investing in real estate part-time while he was working as a full-time high school band director with zero net worth. And within six years and before the age of 30, David became financially independent. In fact, he became a millionaire through the vehicle of part-time real estate investing. And David has been involved with new home construction, land development, commercial real estate, and he has been focused as a professional mortgage note investor for over a decade. Welcome to the show, David. Marco, it's a pleasure to be here with you and your audience. Well, thanks. It's great having you here. Just give our listeners a sense of geography. Where are you located? I am in a suburb of San Francisco. Great. California. Today's subject is about mortgage note investing. And I need to be honest with our listeners. I am not a big fan of quote-unquote paper assets. However, I do make exception with mortgage notes. And the reason is, is because it's actually an IOU that is backed by a real tangible asset, which in this case, it's real estate, or at least in my case, it would be real estate. That's the only thing I would invest in. So I like mortgage notes for that reason. And the other thing is our show, the theme is passive real estate investing. So this fits right in with that model of passive real estate investing. So I think the best place to start for people who are not that familiar with what notes are or mortgage notes specifically is maybe you can explain what mortgage notes are and what they look like. Awesome. A mortgage note is kind of shorthand. It's an, uh, a way of saying promissory note secured by a piece of property. And that security instrument can be either a mortgage or a deed of trust. It depends on what state you're, you're, you're doing business in, which security instrument you, you're using. And it's, so it's a two-part instrument, and they kind of move together. The, the promise to pay, which is called the promissory note, which states how big the loan is and what the interest rate and the terms of the loan are. And then that security instrument, which is the mortgage note or the deed of trust, that's the thing that ties that note to the piece of property and what makes that promise to pay have so much strength. Because... Either the borrower pays you as agreed, or you get to foreclose on that property, and ideally you foreclose on that property for pennies on the dollar. Okay, so really you're talking about 
two parts, one thing, but made up of two parts. You've got a note, which is the promise to pay or a promissory note. And then that is piggybacked with another document, which is the security instrument. And that's either a mortgage or a deed of trust, depending on what state you're in, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And the difference between a mortgage and a deed of trust, a deed of trust is what's called a non-judicial foreclosure uh, action. So if you, if someone doesn't pay you, then you file a notice in the public record that at such and such a date uh, on the courthouse steps, this property will be auctioned for sale. And that's it. As long as you comply with the timing and the notice uh, noticing, then that sale goes through. A mortgage is different than a deed of trust in that you have to go to court to get the court to foreclose on the property for you. Um, you know, fundamentally, they're, they're, they're conceptually the same. It gives the right of a lender to force a borrower to sell the property for the benefit of the, uh, the investor lender. Uh, I, I have a, a slight preference for deed of trust because it's simpler, it's usually faster and less expensive uh, to foreclose on a deed of trust. But that being said, the vast majority of mortgage notes, if they're written in a conservative fashion, uh, they do not get foreclosed upon. The, the vast majority of the notes that we work with at our company uh, are, are performing. They, they perform as agreed. It's pretty, pretty seldom that we have to foreclose on a property. Yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask you, but just for, uh, for clarification, um, and really this is more of a side note. But the difference between a judicial foreclosure or a note in a judicial state versus that with a deed of trust is a foreclosure in a state that goes through the judicial system can take literally years before it goes through the system. And that's the problem with states like Florida. There's such a backlog of foreclosures that there's still foreclosures in the pipeline that haven't gone through the system because it's held up in the court system. Whereas a deed of trust can take 90, 120 days to go through the system and complete a foreclosure from the time it's filed, right? That's correct. Yeah, my favorite state uh, to buy mortgage notes in is the state of Texas. In the state of Texas, it's a deed of trust uh, state. And in Texas, you can foreclose on a property. An uncontested foreclosure is going to be about 120 days and less than $1,000. Wow, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. And also, another thing I really like about uh, owning mortgage notes in Texas is it's a deficiency judgment state, which means that if you foreclose on a property and the foreclosure sale doesn't create enough cash to satisfy everything that's owed to the lender, that in Texas you can also sue the borrower for the deficiency, the amount that they didn't pay you. And so you can actually um, do the deed of trust foreclosure and then separately sue the borrower for the deficiency afterwards. Um, in our business, you, you know, we're focused on notes that are producing a high interest rate, a higher yield, uh, which usually means that the um, property is strong, the uh, loan to value is strong, but the borrower is sometimes slightly weak, and it's usually a credit score deficiency. So in our lending uh, business, we're primarily asset-based lenders, meaning we do underwrite the borrower to make sure they can afford the, the loan. But in terms of collecting, we, we're primarily looking at the property and the equity in the property uh, to collect upon. So even though we have the right to pursue a borrower uh, for a deficiency, it usually uh, doesn't work out because the borrowers aren't, aren't very collectible. Um, but with that deficiency judgment, 
uh, ability means is the borrower knows that they should cooperate with a, a short sale or a deed in lieu foreclosure or just sometimes you know cash for keys that they'll they'll walk away from the property and the loan, um, you know if they get into non-payment situation because they they could be liable. Like for example, in states where there is no deficiency judgment, some borrowers just get mad at the lender and they trash the house on the way out because they know the lender's only recourse is getting the property back. In a recourse state, if the borrower trashes the property on the way out, the borrower it means the property is going to sell for less money, which means the deficiency judgment on that borrower is potentially significantly larger. So we, you've got a lot more leverage with uh, borrowers in um, the state of Texas where there's deed of trust and where there's deficiency uh, ability to get deficiency judgment. Okay, so let's let's take a step back and break this down uh, before we go too deep. Uh, there are different types of notes, and you're talking about notes from an origination perspective, meaning that you're the one writing or creating or funding that note, but that's one side of the equation. There's the other side where you can be an investor in a note. So explain notes from the perspective of the originator of that note or the uh, holder of the note, Talk about the different lean positions, because you can be in first, second, third position with a note, and then the difference between a performing note versus a non-performing note. I know that's a lot I'm throwing at you, but if we can just kind of chunk it down, that would be great. Awesome. So I'll start with the simple and go to the more complex. So a non-performing note is a note where the borrower is not paying as agreed. And a lot of people invest in non-performing notes. Um, it's an existing note. It's performing. Someone else originated it. And the person who wants to buy that non-performing note, their goal is usually to foreclose on the property because they think that they can buy that note for less than the property is worth. And their goal is to go through the foreclosure process and to own the property. So we call that loan to own. They don't ever want to be a mortgage note investor. They want to be a real estate investor and get title to that property through the foreclosure process. Our business does not deal in non-performing notes. We deal in performing notes. And so oftentimes uh, when you go to a bank and you borrow money or you go to a mortgage broker and they make a loan for you, pretty commonly a month or two or three months later, you get a, a letter in the mail that says, don't send your payment to us anymore because we've sold your mortgage to a different company. And then that can happen two or three or four times even at the beginning of a mortgage. And the reason is there's people who are in the business of originating notes and there's people that are in the business of holding notes for income. And it's kind of the difference between someone who wants to have a job, that's the loan originator or a business and originating notes, and that person who wants to be an income investor or to have you know, bonds. Basically, mortgage notes are a different type of bond. It's a promise to pay back by real estate. Um, so our company goes through the hassle and the complexity of creating the mortgage notes or finding existing notes where the lender wants to sell those notes to our, our clients. So sometimes our company will buy notes and resell them. Sometimes we just connect uh, a an existing note to an, an investor who wants the income stream. Um, and the reason someone wants to sell a note um, is either they want to rebalance their portfolio. Sometimes someone, uh, they sold a property with seller financing and then their life changed and they want to sell that note to get a lump sum of cash to go do something with. Um, 
sometimes people really want to just turn their money quickly, meaning they originate loan, they make one point or two points origination on that loan, and then they want to sell that note as quick as they can so they can use that money to originate another loan and make one or two points. Uh, so there's a lot of different motivations uh, in the mortgage business, and what we work with are clients that want either through their self-directed IRA or through this, their personal checking account, they want to acquire an income stream that's paying you know interest rates of eight to ten percent. That's very well secured uh, in first position by real estate, and so that brings to your next question about lien position. So the note is just a promise to pay, and then the collateral is the deed of trust that's secured against the, that real estate, right? And so the real estate, if it's sold, the first person to get paid is the, the person who's running the foreclosure auction. And then the next person who gets paid are the, the, any outstanding uh, property taxes on the, uh, the property. And then after that, there's any financial lien holders on the property get paid next, right? And so that's the those are the lenders on the property get paid next. So the very first lender in line to get money at the foreclosure sale is the first lien holder. And that first lien holder from the foreclosure sale gets all of the net proceeds of sale until they've been paid back all their principal interest and any late fees and foreclosure fees that they're owed. The next person that gets paid at that foreclosure sale would be a second lien holder, uh, if any, right? And then uh, potentially there could be a third lien holder on that property. And then once all of the lien holders on that property get paid, any additional money from the foreclosure sale usually goes to the the person whose property was, the, uh, the, the person who was foreclosed upon, the property seller. That, that would be remaining equity. Yeah, correct, correct. What happens often in a foreclosure sale is the lenders show up to the foreclosure sale and let's say it was a hundred thousand dollar property and the lender is owed seventy five thousand dollars that would be seventy five percent loan to value the lender shows up to the foreclosure sale and there's no bidders and then they say the uh, the trustee who's running the the foreclosure sale says we open the bid in the amount of the outstanding indebtedness in favor of the first lien holder and if there's no other bidders then that first lien holder, they basically purchased the property for the amount of their lien, and um, they they own the property now. And so, if there's multiple bidders at the property auction, um, which would ha usually happen in a low loan to value loan situation, so if the loan is only you know twenty thirty percent loan to value, and the property is in a major metro, you can be pretty sure that someone's going to show up to that foreclosure auction and just pay you off as a lender. If you're a lender in a high loan-to-value situation, or you're in a rural, uh, you know, in place, it's possible um, no one's going to bid on that loan, and you're going to wind up owning that property as the lender. Mm -hmm. And that's really brings me back to the, the fundamental principles of lending: is you want to be happy if you get repaid because the interest rate is high enough to be a good rental fee on your money, and then you have to be happy, sometimes happier, if you don't get repaid because there's enough equity in that property to cover the time and the hassle and expense of going through a foreclosure and reselling that property. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, you know, people make more money through the foreclosure process than they would as a lender. Um, 
I personally want all of my borrowers to succeed. When we make loans and we buy existing notes that are performing, I really do want the borrowers to succeed. But if they don't succeed, I am not going to miss you know a single you know skip a beat in foreclosing because they made a promise to pay, and if they don't meet that contractual obligation to pay, then it's the lender's right and responsibility to foreclose on the asset um, to protect their investment. Right. It's my understanding that a very small percentage of these notes are actually foreclosed on. You don't actually go through the entire foreclosure process and take title to a property other than maybe in a few cases. That's correct. Yeah. And and it really depends on how well those loans are underwritten at the very beginning. Uh, Specifically, when we underwrite our notes, number one, most important thing to us is the value of the asset, the condition of the asset, and the loan size relative to that asset. And so we as a company like to be 75% loan to value or less. A smaller loan to value is better for a lender because it gives you more security, more protective equity, both from a non-performing borrower and from a potential decrease in property values. So if you're at 75% loan to value and the property value decreases, well, you haven't lost anything as a lender, right? It has to decrease beyond the borrower's entire down payment into a negative equity situation before you as a lender uh, are significantly exposed to, um, to loss. Right. So the other thing that we look at is we want to be compliant with uh, the Frank Dodd Act. And generally, I'm going to give you some very big rules of thumb, but just this is not legal advice. Check it. You know, there's a lot of rules around lending, so you got to do your own uh, due diligence, have your your team support you on doing due diligence. But generally, if you're doing a business-to-business transaction, meaning an investor is loaning to an investor, or uh, so it's not a, a consumer loan, but the borrower is using the money for uh, investment purposes and the property itself is held for investment. Um, the compliance or the regulations around those types of loans are a lot, uh, a lot less. And so what you'll find is most hard money lenders, they won't lend to consumers because the compliance, the legal compliance is too high when you're lending to consumers. Our business primarily uh, works with uh, investors, but we also do um, buy notes or broker notes that are originated to consumers. So we don't want to do the direct lending to the consumer, but we work with other mortgage brokers or or loan originators, uh, registered mortgage loan originators, RLMO, um, who create the paper. They create the paper for owner-occupants, and then once it's created, we'll go buy that paper. And the person who holds that license, that uh, RLMO license, they handle all of the compliance with the Frank Dodd Act to make sure that the property disclosures were done adequately and that the loan documents are compliant and that the loan size is compliant and the interest rate is compliant. Um, in some states, if you are loaning to an investor on a property that's held for investment um, and it's done with a, a, a licensed uh, real estate broker, there's really no limit on the interest rate that you can charge to that investor. But you take that same property and you make it owner-occupied, and there is. Then, then you, you, you're you faced with um, usury compliance and Frank Dodd compliance to make uh, that loan in a, um, a reasonable rate. The way that we help our clients get high yields on mortgage paper uh, for owner-occupants 
is really the difference between the interest rate on the note and the yield on the note. So you might have a note where the interest rate says, you know, 8% or 9%, and that's what the borrower promised to pay is their principal back plus 8 or 9% per year. But if you buy that note at a slight discount, meaning you only pay 95 to 99 cents um, to buy a $100 lien or a $1 lien, then that discount, that purchasing the property or purchasing that note, I should say, at a discount, gives the investor a higher yield. And so that's when we look for notes to buy uh, or, or sell, most of the notes that we resell to our clients uh, are slightly discounted. Um, and that discount helps make uh, what otherwise could have looked like a mediocre investment become an awesome investment um, because the discount gives the buyer uh, investor, that mortgage note investor, better security because they have less money invested in that note. So their loan um, to value is now lower. Second, it makes their yield higher. And third, it makes it uh, attractive if a borrower pays you off early. Because as a mortgage note investor, you really don't want to get paid off. Because when you get paid off, you've got vacancy on your money. and You've got to go through the time and hassle of finding another mortgage note. But when you buy a note at a slight discount, you're getting the interest rate that you've been, uh, you know, agreed to. But then if they pay you off early, you get to realize the time value of those uh, of that discount being paid uh, all at once. It's kind of like getting points, right? You can get points on the, the, the front end of the loan, which makes your yield higher when they pay you off. Yeah. If someone stops paying you on a note, then your cash flow stops. So you've lost that passive income. But these are performing notes when you buy them. How often do you actually see situations where a performing note becomes a non-performing note? You know, you could look at industry-wide numbers, but you really have to drill down to what type of note are you uh, investing in. And the, the big things are uh, what's the borrower strength, what's the borrower's credit, what's their debt-to-income ratio, what's the borrower's occupation, and what's their uh, liquidity look like. Um, and more importantly to me, as I said earlier, uh, what's the asset equity? And if a property has a lot of equity in it, there is no business reason for that property to go uh, to foreclosure. And the reason is if the property's got equity in it, the borrower simply, they sell it, right? If, if they've got equity and they can't afford their payment, they sell it. Uh, even if they call one of those, hey, we buy ugly houses for cash in two days kind of people, it's usually better than going through foreclosure. Right. Where does the investor get all this information, though? You mentioned a bunch of things, such as the stability of, of the borrower, their credit, et cetera, et cetera. But is that information piggybacked on top of the mortgage note? Or where do you get that information from? Mm -hmm. um, in our company, we collect um, a, a significant uh, loan file with each loan. And so it's not uncommon for our loan files to be 100 to 200 pages uh, thick of, of documentation. Um, and that documentation is a lot of it designed for compliance so that if a borrower ever says, hey, I was taken advantage of, this is a uh, high cost loan that I couldn't afford, poor me, you know, the lender, big bad lender took advantage of me. What we've got in the loan file is all the documentation that says, no, Mr. Borrower, according to you, under penalty of perjury, you said you could afford this loan. Here's all of the income documents that support your statement that this was affordable at the time that you borrowed the money. So 
that's primarily why we collect that information. Secondarily, we collect that information to help our investors make uh, a, a very prudent uh, decision uh, so they can get a feel for who that borrower is. Uh, the third reason we collect that information is it's a roadmap to the borrower's assets and it's a roadmap to collecting from the borrower. So if the note ever does go non-performing, there's a lot of clues in that borrower application that'll help you find the borrower. For example, you know uh, where they work, they, you know where they've lived in the past, you know uh, where they bank, you know uh, if they've got other assets, they've told you where those assets are. Um, so it's easier to find them, right? Do a skip trace to find the borrower. And secondarily, if you foreclose and you want to pursue a deficiency judgment, then you know whether the borrower's got assets to go collect against or uh, wage garnishment, for example, you know where the borrower works. Right. So when it comes to evaluating a mortgage note, is everything that you just listed off the same thing that a typical or average investor investing in notes on their own would have to go through as well? Those are the same things that they should be looking at? Correct, correct. So when you're originating a loan yourself, you're going to want to put all of that information together, hopefully with a licensed broker to help you uh, avoid the, the pitfalls. Um, and one huge part of the due diligence that we didn't talk about yet is the title commitment on the property and the title insurance on that particular uh, mortgage note investment. And the purpose of the title insurance is to protect the lender's lien interest in the property. Um, because you could write on a, a mortgage note document, first position lien, and you file it with the county, and if you are the fifth person to file your lien in order of chronology, it doesn't matter that it happens to say first position lien, you are actually fifth, because you're the fifth person to show up with your, uh, with your recording stamp. And so the point of the title insurance is to point out, number one, to make sure that the legal description matches, that you actually do have a lien on the property that you think you do. Number two, to make sure that the borrower really owns the property that they are uh, using as collateral. And the third is to make sure that your lien order is, is correct, that there's no other liens on the property. Um, and also, you, you want to check that... Uh, preliminary title commitment for any other like easements on the property, if there's something of public record that might make you think that the property value would be different than it uh, appears on the surface because of easements or other um, uh, encumbrances on the property. Okay, so you're answering this question from the perspective of a loan originator, but what if you're a passive real estate investor looking to just simply buy a note. Is the evaluation process the same thing as what you just described? They, they should be looking for the same types of things? Correct. Yeah. So when you're a loan originator, you've got to go collect the documents when you're, and you've got to know what to ask for. When you're buying an existing mortgage note, usually that entire package is already put together for you and someone can spoon feed it to you and say, here you go, it's in a neat little bundle and here's usually a summary. Someone's usually read the, all of the original documents and put a summary of that note together. So as a starting point, you read the summary and say, yeah, that looks really good. And then uh, it should have all of those primary source documents available to you to make sure that that summary information is correct. So here's a tangent question. I, I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm just curious. When you get this bundle or this packet, because you're evaluating a note because you're thinking of investing in notes, and you're flipping through all this stuff, and there's 100 or 200 pages in there, what is the one most important factor or thing to look for 
that trumps everything else? Um, I am usually going right to the value of the property relative to the loan size. The LTV. Yeah, the LTV. That's number one to me. Number two is the title commitment. I want to go right to that title policy and uh, see that the lien position that I have really is uh, correct. Um, yeah, I kind of figured it was the LTV, but I wanted to hear it from you. Yeah, I, I don't really underwrite the borrowers um, in the types of loans that we're doing, which are... Um, uh, uh, they're all they're portfolio type loans. These aren't borrowers that are going to go to Wells Fargo uh, and get a loan uh, because if their credit was perfect, they wouldn't be paying nine ten percent for a loan. They'd be getting four percent from from Fannie Mae, right? So there's I call it a three legged stool to uh, evaluating a loan. One is the borrower's capacity to repay. The second is the asset uh, LTV itself, and the third is the asset quality, like what is the collateral for um, for the loan. For example, we really love having single family homes as collateral for a loan because they're very liquid, they're easy to sell, they're easy to evaluate. Um, if you foreclose on them, they're pretty easy to fix up, turn, and get back to the marketplace. Even if the marketplace, um, there's a huge economic crash, right? People are always gonna need a place to live and at some price, someone's going to want to buy or rent that property from you. If the uh, collateral is, is land or a commercial building, mm, those assets are harder to liquidate. They're less, uh, there's fewer buyers in the market for those assets. Um, so we really focus on single family homes. We also want single family homes who have a minimum asset value of $75,000. And the reason is, um, that creates, uh, it eliminates junk homes from our, our portfolio. We don't want a junk home as, as collateral. Uh, and in you know, the markets where we're primarily lending, which is Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas, um, 75 grand is, is, uh, is a decent home, right? That, that, that's not a, a junk home. Whereas in San Francisco, 75 grand is, is a not garage. Even, yeah. It's a garage with termites infested and, and mold, <laughs> right? So uh, it, it really depends on that. That seventy-five thousand dollars is a little arbitrary based on the market. And what I'm really trying to do is saying I I want a reasonable um, piece of collateral for my loan that if I have to foreclose, it's worth the cost of foreclosure. And, and let me just tell you a quick story. I had a client who bought uh, a, a mortgage note on a twenty thousand uh, dollar home in a rough part of Florida and the borrower didn't pay and they had to foreclose on that asset. And after spending a couple thousand dollars in attorney's fees, plus um, the property back taxes on it had already gone up to a couple thousand dollars. And after taking possession of the property and getting it cleaned up and paying the resale broker on the deal, all their equity was gone, right? If $20,000 property and a $15,000 loan, they only have five, 75% loan to value, but they only have $5,000 of protective equity. And that $5,000 was gone in a hurry just through foreclosure costs, legal costs, the resale costs, the fix-up costs, et cetera. So by having a minimum asset value um, that helps uh, our clients make sure that the, if they do foreclose, they've got plenty of 
not only LTV, but actual gross dollars of protective equity to cover the transaction costs. Right. Yep, that makes sense. And I talk a lot about the foreclosure process because the performing part of a note is simple. You you get a ACH deposit in your account every month and that's it. Like, da-da. And when you file your taxes at the end of the year, your loan servicer, because all of our notes that we originate are, are professionally serviced by a professional and uh, insured bonded uh, mortgage loan servicing company, um, you basically get an ACH check in your, your savings account, checking account each month. And at the end of the year, you get uh, 1099 for the interest that you received for the year. And it's that simple. I mean, it really is that simple to be a mortgage note investor in a performing note. But all of the complexity is thinking through, well, what happens if I don't get paid and I want to be happy if I don't get repaid? And I run into to investors all the time and say, oh, David, you'd be so proud of me. I made a loan to a company that's paying me 12%. And I'll say, what's the collateral for your loan? And they say, nothing. They promised me to pay me. And look, it's 12%. And I'll say, it's not worth the paper that it's written on, right? Good luck. It's to a company. And who cares what the company's assets are unless you have a direct lien on the asset of the company. You're, you're really an unsecured creditor uh, and that's a very weak position to be in to try to collect that debt. Um, you definitely want to be secured and you want to be secured in first position. I can't say that enough. Uh, a lot of investors get sucked into, hey, I, I found the second mortgage lien that I could buy and it's only $10,000 and it's 14% interest. And no, you don't want to buy a second mortgage lien. I mean, uh, uh, I do. I own lots of second mortgage liens, but I've been doing this for over a decade. I've got a very substantial portfolio. And uh, any time if that first mortgage lien goes non-performing, the second lender has to be able to write a check to pay off that first mortgage lien. And then you have a first lien because you never want a second lien. But if you buy one, you just have to be prepared to become the first lender if it goes non-performing. And most investors don't have that financial uh, wherewithal to just at a moment's notice, write a check to pay off the first lien. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We used to work together when you were building new construction homes over the last two years. I think it was two years ago down in Dallas and Fort Worth. And they were great investment properties. You know, investors were very happy. But you've kind of made a shift and you had made a comment to me before that mortgage notes have become your favorite investment in this market cycle. Can you just take 30 seconds and explain why this has become your favorite type of investment right now? Yeah. Number one, it's simple. It's hassle-free. Uh, number two, it's safe, right? When you are a buyer of real estate in a seller's market, um, you're paying a market cycle premium for that asset. And if there is a correction in that market, then you're experiencing that, that loss. If you're a mortgage note investor, then if there's a downward price movement in the market, you don't necessarily experience a loss on your investment. Um, so I'm just looking at overall market cycles. Right now, money is still on sale. So if you want to go buy investment property and you can borrow cheap money to go do it and your interest rate is significantly lower than the cap rate on the property, great. That's a great long-term investment, even though it's a seller's market of real estate. It's still a buyer's market of debt. Yeah, it still makes it still could make a lot of sense to buying cash flow income producing property. Um, but when I'm looking at 
a lot of the properties that we're holding mortgages on, I think they're great investments for income for mortgage notes because we're they only into them for 75 cents loan on the dollar or uh, 75 cents on the dollar. And every single month as that borrower makes a, a principal and an interest payment, that principal payment that they make to me, it lowers my risk in the investment. And I'm just looking at the macro economy right now. And personally, I want to get to a lower risk position. And so I could say I could go buy that property and make a six and a half, seven cap. Or I could be the lender on that property with significantly less risk, significantly uh, less hassle, and I'm going to get a 10% yield, which is basically a 10 cap if I were free and clear uh, ownership of that, that property. So obviously 10 is better than 7, and less hassle is better than more hassle. So um, I'm really going to a more hassle-free approach, less risk approach, easier cash flow. Uh, also, what I'm noting in the marketplace is so many of our clients have very significant IRAs and they've got the majority of their net worth invested in the stock market. And I think the real estate market right now in 2015, I don't think it's at a top. I think there's a little bit more room for that uh, real estate market to run before we get to a, a correction in the market. I agree. But in the stock market, I, I disagree. I think that we are at a market top and I think that the next move for the market uh, is a significant down correction before we see any appreciable gain in, in, in the stock market. So if, for our clients who are in uh, equities, if once the equities reach a market point, you sell equities and you buy bonds. But you can't go buy you know municipal bonds and treasury bonds because the yield doesn't outpace inflation. No, it's a losing proposition right now. It is, it is. So the strategy that I see for the majority of our clients is not really how do they change their real estate investing strategy, but how do they change their IRA investing, their stock investing strategy? And the answer is you sell your equities, you sell stocks, and you buy bonds, and you can't buy conventional bonds because the yield is low, so you have to buy mortgage bonds, which are um, mortgage notes, right? A mortgage note is the same as a, as a bond, right? But the, I actually like mortgage notes better because a bond isn't usually backed by anything except for... You know, the company's promise. The promise to pay. Yeah, yeah. But if you let's say you bought a Greek bond, right? The federal government of Greece promises to pay the bearer of this bond. Blah, blah, blah. Well, that didn't work out so well. No, good luck with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't walk up to you know the Greek parliament building and say, hey, I own this building now because you didn't pay back my bond. Eh. A bond is still an unsecured debt in terms of the way traditional investors think of bonds. That's right. When I think of bonds. I want to own the bond that's collateralized, that is secured by something real. So if the borrower doesn't pay, I get that real thing, that tangible thing that someone could live in or rent from me or I could uh, sell you know, at a profit. Yeah. I just recorded a episode that went live this morning on uh, investing using your retirement accounts, you know, 401ks, IRAs, self-directed retirement accounts. And this is a perfect investment vehicle to plug into those IRAs and 401ks because it's tax sheltered. There are no tax benefits like depreciation that you get from a note. So you're not losing anything, whether it's inside or outside of your retirement account, your self-directed retirement account. And therefore, it makes a perfect investment to hold inside these retirement accounts. And I know you like that particular strategy. 
I do. Yeah, currently the only thing I own in my self-directed IRA is mortgage notes. And I don't have any plans to change that strategy. Um, because as that mortgage note income goes to my self-directed IRA, it's tax deferred. Or in case of my Roth IRA, it's tax free forever. So huge fan of, of notes in my IRA. If it's outside of my IRA, because I do own notes outside of my, my IRA, um, then that money is taxed as interest income, which is at my uh, ordinary income tax rate from a federal and state income tax perspective. Um, I don't pay self-employment tax on that uh, interest income, but I, it is taxed at a relatively high rate outside my, my IRA. Another great reason why I like mortgage note investing at this time in the market cycle is investors recently had a significant appreciation on their real estate assets. So maybe, you know, smart investors bought property in 2010, 11, and 12. And now here we are, you know, several years later, they've seen a significant capital increase in the, the price of their properties. And they've got equity that they could harvest at today's incredibly low 30-year fixed interest rates. But what do you do when you harvest that equity, right? They were smart and they bought when prices are low and then they pull the equity out when prices are high. But what do they do with that? And a lot of investors are thinking, well, maybe I just double down and I buy more properties. But I think a great play is if you've got a significantly appreciated property, uh, you can't ten, cannot 1031 exchange into a note because it's not a like-kind asset to sell real estate and buy a note. But what you can do is go do a cash-out refinance on your property, use the a uh, 30-year fixed mortgage at, say, 4.5%, at today's rates, and then go buy a mortgage note with a fixed interest rate of 10%, and you've got the perfect arbitrage play. You borrowed it at 5 and you invested it at 10 Your income in significantly increases your money out, and it's a recipe for, you know, for awesome cash flow or awesome arbitrage. Yeah, it's a good strategy. We've talked about interest rates quite a bit here, but how do you determine the interest rate of a note? In other words, what factors play in that allow the marketplace to determine that rate? Mm -hmm. That's a perfect question. So interest rates are a reflection of supply and demand. And so right now in the economy, the, the general demand for borrowing is generally weak. And so um, when borrowing is weak, there's less demand on the money. And so prices fall to, uh, to stimulate borrowers from that, that exist. Also, in the general real estate lending environment, the supply of capital is abundant. Lenders have a tremendous amount of cash, and the you know, federal funds rate is extremely low to stimulate investors or lenders to get that cash out into the marketplace. So across the economy right now, interest rates are historically low, right? You can go get a 30-year fixed mortgage under 5% because there are not a lot of borrowers and the abundance of cash is high. So we've got that supply and demand thing working. When someone doesn't fit the conventional bank formula, right? Their credit is weak, their debt to income ratio is weak, maybe their uh, down payment is a gift from a family member, or maybe their citizenship is, uh, uh, that's a very common thing for us, is where someone is uh, a, a resident alien, they've got their green card, they're living here legally, they're working here legally, but they don't have a social security number, mm -hmm. and therefore 
they can't get money from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. They can't go to Wells Fargo if you don't have a, a social. Um, but they still have the right to live and work here and the right to own property here. Um, in fact, you know, right now, the largest purchaser of property in the United States are Chinese, not even just Chinese immigrants, but people who are living in China. They're coming to buy commercial property up like crazy. So clearly, there's the foreigners have a right to buy property here, um, but they can't finance it. They can't finance a, a home, a single family home um, with cheap financing from the bank because the banks don't have any loan programs for, for that type of borrower. And the reason is... Most lenders, like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they are relying upon the guarantee of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or FHA to back up their investment in a mortgage loan. And if Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and FHA are not going to uh, repurchase or insure the loan, then the lenders aren't going to do it. They've got too many other opportunities to lend money that's insured by the government yep. that they're not willing to lend it uninsured to a non-citizen. Um, but that leaves a huge gap in the marketplace. So one of the reasons we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth market is there's a gigantic uh, immigration of Latino borrowers into Dallas-Fort Worth, and that lending market is underserved. There are no uh, current there, there have been in the past, but there are not any currently um, major institutions lending to immigrant borrowers in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. Um, but those borrowers have great jobs, great debt-to-income ratio, and they usually have a, a mattress full of cash that they show up to the closing and they can put a huge down payment on a property, um, but they need a lender. They need someone to bridge that gap. Um, and so we are all the time um, working with immigrant buyers to help them become homeowners. And it's awesome because uh, they're happy. They, they just feel like they've won the American dream lottery and they get to write home and say, I moved to America and now I own a home in, in a major metro in, in America. And also the reason it works in Dallas-Fort Worth for us is even if we're lending that money out at 9.5%, 10% interest rate, if someone has a 25% down payment, the cost to own and the cost to rent are identical, even at 10% interest rate. And so the person who's looking at buying this home, they're not really focused on rate. They're focused on payment. I could own this home for $1,000 a month or I could rent this home for $1,000 a month. The only difference is whether they have a down payment in the property. And so we're able to sell um, seller-financed properties in Dallas-Fort Worth um, to people on payment. And they don't really care what the rate is because they can own a home and it's the same price. Yeah, we buy everything on payment, cars, you name it. And, you know, your model there, your story is a great example of, you know, the free enterprise system at work if it's let loose to work as opposed to subsidizing everything through government programs where it just skews the market and makes it artificially inflated or purposely deflated. So I love that model. Now, in terms of determining the market value of a note, are the factors the same that are driving the interest rates drive the market value? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So it's, it's the loan to value. It, here, make it really simple, really simple. The borrower has to be happy to be repaid or happy to not get repaid. And some lenders, they want a huge assurance that they're never going to have to go through foreclosure, right? And so, you know, most of the notes that we are helping our clients into are some 5% loan to value and the collateral 
is a class B blue collar home built between 1960 and 1985, right? That's kind of, and the borrowers, great income, but either zero credit, that's most common is our borrowers have no credit score at all, or they have weak credit. Um, either they've got a, they moved from California to Texas. That's a big part of our business is people who uh, did a short sale. Uh, their job moved from Orange County to Dallas and they did a short sale on their home and now uh, they can't buy a home. They can't get a conventional mortgage. So we we can bridge that gap for them uh, with high interest rate um, loans. And then they just hold that high interest rate loan for a couple of years till their credit heals and they refinance. Um, but to I digress a little bit, but the idea is um, if the borrower is an A plus borrower, let me give you an example of our typical note is um, 75% loan to value, blue collar worker, blue collar home, slightly older uh, property. The pricing on that note is going to be in the uh, nine to 10% range, right? Let's look at a different example. We've got a loan at 50% loan to value. Um, the property is 10 years old. Uh, it's a doctor who's got an 800 FICO score, making multiple six figures. Um, he was Fannie Mae Freddie da out. He he had more um, more than 10 properties, so he couldn't get a conventional bank loan. But Everything about it's great, right? There's 50% equity. The borrower personally guaranteed it. He's got a great job, great debt-to-income ratio, and the story behind why he needs a private loan, you know, makes sense, right? He he would get it from a bank, except for he's got 10 loans. Mm, that, that, that doesn't make it a risk to me just because he's got 10 loans. Right. Um, uh, but anyway, that note might trade for five and a half, six percent Okay. Uh, so Joe, that, that pricing on that note, it, it kind of varies, right? Okay. And then let's look, maybe it's a second position lien on a property up to 90% loan to value. Okay. Maybe that second position lien is going to need a yield of 18 to 25%. Well, the higher risk note will carry a higher rate of return naturally. Exactly. That's the, you nailed it on the head. Yeah. Back in 2009, at the peak of the housing market implosion, if you want to call it that, there were about 15 million homes underwater, and banks were swimming in notes that were on upside-down properties, performing and non-performing. Today, the numbers come down to somewhere around 7.5 million, so there's still a lot of these notes in the system. But the problem is, is that investors can't just call up Wells Fargo or Citibank and say, hey, I'd like to buy a couple of notes. You know, they sell them in tranches of $50 million plus or minus. So that's that's a problem for a small-time real estate investor looking to buy notes. So how do they source real estate notes? Where do you go to find these notes to invest in? What are the sources or how do you narrow this world down? You know, one obvious answer is companies like ours that aggregate notes for resale. That is a, a pretty easy source, right? For example, our typical note size is going to be between about sixty and a hundred thousand dollars, which is very you know bite size. We also work with investors on owning note fractions, so they can actually maybe on a hundred thousand dollar note, they only have twenty thousand dollars. Twenty thousand dollars is not enough to buy an entire mortgage note of any quality, but they could own twenty percent of a $100,000 note and they would still be in first position. They would just be a co-owner of other investors in a first position note. Um, if you're looking for notes for sale, uh, to be an aggregator of notes for sale, like our business model, uh, like where do we find notes is a, is a you know, great example. Um, the hard way to do it, the really hard way to do it is to put up advertising like 
Craigslist and go on you know websites and that are um, bulletin boards for people that might be having seller finance notes for sale. Um, that's the hard way to do it, right? An easier way is to connect with a hard money loan broker like myself, and we can connect borrowers and, and lenders together. Um, the other way is to build a, what I call a duplicatable business model. And so through the power of my network, I've taught a couple of our clients and have found other people in the industry who already had this business model um, of people who fix and flip houses. So those people are always in demand for borrowing hard money. And so uh, there's always a, a source of people borrowing when you connect to the, those people who are fixing and flipping houses. The other thing is if someone fixes and flips a house, if they know they can sell that note when they flipped it, then they can offer it for sale to cash buyers. They can offer it for sale to conventionally financed borrowers. And they can also offer seller financing. Even if they have no intention of holding that note forever, if you're going to fix and flip a home or if you've got any property for sale, you can offer that home with seller financing. And then after you've closed, then you resell that seller financing note to a company like mine or to a client of ours. And um, then you've got cash. Yep. Interesting. Well, we're going a little long and this has been great. You piled on the information. So is there anything I didn't ask you that maybe I should have? You know, uh, we do have a free report to help investors get a lot more information about this. So we've got a couple videos on uh, how to be a private lender, as well as an awesome white paper uh, that's got tons of meat in it. It's all meat, meat, meat with a lot of vocabulary to help you understand um, the different complexities of, of evaluating notes and doing due diligence on notes and creating notes and understanding the note documents, et cetera. Um, you can get a copy of that free white paper by sending an email to, get ready, it's lending, L-E-N-D-I-N-G, lending at hasslefree cashflow investing. Com. Again, that's lending at hasslefreecashflowinvesting.com. I'm going to put a link in the show notes and on our website to that email address so people can just simply click and email and make that request if they want a copy of that white paper. Yeah, and if someone has a note for sale or they want to buy a note, I'd be happy to just give you uh, you know, a quick consultation to say, you know, if you've got an existing note you're trying to, to evaluate, I'd be happy to, you know, look at it and tell you my thoughts. Or um, if you want to create a note, maybe you, you want to sell a home on seller financing and you want someone to help you put those together so that you can get the highest sales price for your note possible, uh, I'd be happy to advise you on that as well. Okay, great. Good stuff. Well, David, I appreciate your time. This has been invaluable. Lots of great information. I, I think we've gone very deep in some of these uh, subjects. So hopefully it wasn't too confusing for investors, but uh, I think with a little bit of research, due diligence, maybe conversation with you or your report, they can work their way through the weeds and figure out how simple uh, note investing can actually be. Because at the end of the day, it's really uh, an IOU where you're getting monthly passive income. And, and that's really what it's all about. So I want to thank you for being on the show and uh, I appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yes, thank you very much, Marco. I really enjoyed being on your show. Well, there you have it. It was a long episode, but it was very content-rich, and that was a lot of information about mortgage note investing. 
It's an interesting subject. I actually think it's a great alternative to holding a portfolio of income generating properties. It's an alternative and it's something to consider. That'll wrap it up for this week. Download our free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. Remember to subscribe. If you want more information, be sure to get a hold of David uh, for that free report. And I'm sure between that report and the videos, it'll simplify note investing for you. Please remember to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us out. We're still giving away a $100 Amazon gift card for another week. And our most recent winner is Danny Sirisides. I believe I pronounced that right. Danny, we're going to be sending you an email here shortly with your $100 Amazon gift card. And that wraps it up for this week. So thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.